meaningful to us than they would have been in the original ancient Near Eastern context in which God gave them. So in order for us to really understand the weight of Exodus 20, verse 3, or the significance of this verse to the people who first heard it, it's necessary for us to do a little homework on their context to try to understand just a little bit about the world of the Hebrew people who first heard God say, you shall have no other gods before me. For starters, we can say this, that in general terms, if you lived in the ancient Near East, you were probably a polytheist. That is, you believed that there were many gods. A god who controlled the rain. And another god who associated himself or herself with the sun. And another god who gave fertility to your animals. And still another god whose domain was the earth in which you grew your crops. And so on and so forth. There were many gods. And the prevailing belief was that the gods together worked in community. They worked in a divine council, in a pantheon, where power amongst the gods was distributed. No single god was ultimate. Each god had his or her own place, and they worked together in a divine council. That was the belief. And the religious life of the ancient Near East operated in terms of a great symbiosis. A great symbiosis, to use the terminology of John Walton. The great symbiosis can be described this way. The gods had needs. The gods needed to be fed and watered. And the job of the people was to meet those needs by ritual and by offering sacrifices to the gods. And then in return, the gods would meet the needs of the people by giving them rain and sunshine and fertility and the like. Polytheistic religious life in the ancient Near East operated as a sort of codependent symbiosis. Uh, To put it sort of crassly, the idea was, give the god his candy because the god is crying. And then he'll be happy and he'll give you rain for your barley crop. Now what's very interesting, friends, is that there's evidence in our Bible that Israel's ancestors were polytheists. For example, Joshua 24, verse 2, tells us that Abraham's dad, Terah, served other gods. And in Genesis 35, verse 2, Jacob had to explicitly tell his own household to put away the foreign gods that are among you. In Genesis 31, verse 19, Laban's daughter, Rachel, 
stole her father's household gods. Which tells us that Laban was a polytheist. And even as, as late as the book of Judges, we have Gideon complaining on one hand that the angel of Yahweh had forsaken Israel. But then on the other hand, we're told in Judges 6, verse 25, that Gideon's father, get this, had an altar to Baal and an Asherah in his backyard. Evidently, Gideon's dad promoted polytheism in his house. Again, we need to understand that the air you breathed, if you lived in the, in the ancient Near East, was the air of polytheism, the belief that there was more than one God. Well, by the time the Hebrew people got to Egypt and were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, so just prior to the time when God liberated them out of Egypt, even there in Egypt, they were polytheists. In Egypt, the Hebrew people lived an awfully long time amongst a polytheistic people, the Egyptians, and the Hebrew people themselves were polytheists. The evidence for Israel's polytheism, serving more than one God while being enslaved in Egypt, is found in a couple of different places. In Joshua 24:14, where Joshua mentions in passing that while in Egypt the people had served gods other than Yahweh, or gods in addition to Yahweh. And also in Ezekiel 20, verses 5 through 10 or so, we learn again that while in Egypt, the people had served foreign idols. They had served gods other than Yahweh. Again, our point, friends, in the ancient Near East, into which the ten words were spoken, polytheism, or the belief in many gods, was in the atmosphere. It was the common system of religion. Well, with all of this working in the background, perhaps now we can begin to see how the first word of the ten words, you shall have no other gods before me, how this would be very radical in the ears of the original ancient Near Easterners who first heard it. No other nation in this ancient world had received a command like this to worship only one God exclusively. But now Israel had received such a command. With the first word of the ten words, Israel was being called to worship and serve Yahweh exclusively. To swear allegiance to Yahweh alone. And in their context, certainly this would have made their ears perk up, I think, in dramatic fashion, as they heard God say this. Now, it also helps us, as we are trying here to recapture the force of Exodus 20, verse 3, it helps us to keep firmly in mind the events that had just transpired in the days prior to this moment in Exodus chapter 20. The plagues in Egypt 
and the crossing of the Red Sea with its rout and defeat of the Egyptians. All of this had been a demonstration, listen, a demonstration of Yahweh's supreme power and the sheer impotency of of Egypt's gods. The true God, Yahweh, had routed the false gods of Egypt, and now Israel's response had to be to serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. No more polytheism. The gods had been defeated. Remember what God said in Exodus 20, verse 2. Look at your Bible if you have it open. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There wasn't any other God who had done the breathtaking thing that Yahweh had done for the people. It was Yahweh who had freed them miraculously by a mighty hand. And now on the other side of that Egyptian crisis, Yahweh was asserting that he alone was now to be the focus and the allegiance of their lives. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, one of the things that's quite interesting about this first word of the ten words is that it doesn't explicitly, I want you to notice this, it doesn't explicitly or conclusively rule out the possibility that there could actually be other gods. But then on the other hand, neither does this verse affirm that other gods Exist. We need to see this. Again, it neither explicitly rules out nor affirms whether gods other than Yahweh actually exist. Other texts in the Old Testament, especially texts that came later in redemptive history, do explicitly rule out the possibility of other gods, especially in the book of Isaiah, where we get unequivocal statements from Yahweh himself, such as this, besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 44, verse 6, and I am Yahweh, and there is no other, besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 5. But in this earlier text, here in Exodus 20, verse 3, the possibility of other gods existing was not explicitly ruled out just yet. God's program here, in the immediate days just after the people had been liberated out of Egypt, his program here was simply to teach the people in no uncertain terms that he, Yahweh, deserved the exclusive covenant loyalty of the people. They were to forsake all other supposed gods. And that he, Yahweh, was to be the exclusive covenant sovereign over them, over the people. 
No third parties were to be entertained in this relationship. It's kind of like a marriage. A third party that intrudes into the relationship between husband and wife ruins the marriage. God demanded that this relationship between himself and his people be kept exclusive. That all other supposed gods were to be ruled out of court at all times. As Jeffrey Tige has put it, in practical terms, the commandment means that Israelites may have no relationship of any kind with other gods. They may not build altars, sanctuaries, or images to them, make offerings to them, consult them, prophesy or take oaths in their names, or even mention their names. Well, another shade we need to see in this first word is this. That when Yahweh said to his people, you shall have no other gods before me, he was also telling them that contrary to the prevailing polytheistic mindset, he was not to be thought of as just one god operating in the midst of some pantheon or council of gods. No. The truth was that Yahweh worked alone. Amen? Amen. Yahweh did not share power with other gods. Yahweh alone had all the power. Yahweh did not share authority with any group of gods. Yahweh was it. All by himself. There was no supposed council of equals. Yahweh was it. This also is wrapped up in the first of the ten words. Now, we might ask here, why is God so radically limiting here? Why does God insist... In this first word of the ten words, why does he insist on this extreme exclusivity in the relationship? You shall have no other gods before me. Is God that lonely? Is God that insecure? Is he on some sort of ego trip? that he would make such a radical, uncompromising demand? And I think the answer is that God commands this way. I want you to listen carefully. He commands this way in Exodus 20, verse 3, because God knows reality better than we do. He knows that only he will satisfy the longings of our human hearts. Only the actual and true God will fulfill what you and I pine for as human beings. His jealousy for this exclusive relationship is because he wants to protect us and keep us in the only relationship that will truly fulfill us. He wants no rivals 
He wants no false lovers to intrude on this relationship that is going to so satisfy us. God knows, friends, that as human beings, doesn't matter if you're in the ancient Near East or in 2019, he knows that as human beings, we will worship someone or something. Because we, as human beings, are worshiping creatures. It doesn't matter who you are, you are a worshiping creature. It is a fundamental fact about human beings, that we will seek someone or something to adore, to trust, and to worship. As Daryl Johnson has put it, and I like this, he says, dogs bark, cats meow, fish swim, snakes slither, and human beings worship. That's just who we are. We are wired, each and every one of us, as a worshiping creature. And we will either worship the one true and living God, or we will fabricate an idol or idols to worship. It'll be one or the other. And so in grace, we need to understand, in grace... God, in the first word, directs us to Him. Yes? To the one we were created to worship. The first word, like all of the other nine words, is a grace that has been given to us. It is a revelation that directs us to the right focus in worship, to the true and living God. He is the one, friend. If you're searching for satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning in life, he is the one in which those things will be found, in your relationship with him. And as Yahweh spoke this first word, he knew that for Israel, they had just come out of, very freshly, had just come out of polytheistic Egypt. But he also knew that they were headed toward polytheistic Canaan. Yahweh's desire was that the people, once they arrived in Canaan, that they would not treat the Canaanite gods as gods. That they would not seek help from the Canaanite idols to grow their crops, to make their families fertile. But that they would rely on him, on Yahweh exclusively for their every need. Well, how did it turn out? As it turned out, the temptation to worship and serve gods in addition to Yahweh was just too great a temptation for Israel in Canaan. And so much of the Old Testament is a long and sordid history of Israel's spiritual adultery of the people serving gods in addition to Yahweh and serving gods instead of Yahweh. Time and time again, the people did what? They transferred their trust and their thanksgiving and their adoration from Yahweh alone, the true God, to other supposed gods who were lifeless But then, friends, 
when the fullness of time came. Because God remained, you see, faithfully committed to having an exclusive relationship with his unfaithful people. What he did is he journeyed to his people in person. In the flesh. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I am the Lord your God who takes on your flesh in my plan to win you back to exclusive relationship with myself. The New Testament identifies Jesus as God. 1 John 5.20, there we are told in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Colossians 1.19 tells us that in Jesus, all the fullness of God, how much of the fullness of God? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And Jesus himself demanded, it's not too strong a word, demanded to be honored as God. When, in John 5.23, he encouraged all people to honor him, And he said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The New Testament further reveals to you and me that as God, Jesus is sovereign king over everything. That as Jesus himself says in more than one place, all things, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. Or as Paul, the Apostle Paul, puts it in 1 Corinthians 15.27, and then again in Ephesians 1.22, God has put all things, how many things? All things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the sovereign God and the King over all things. The New Testament also reveals to us that as God... Jesus created all things. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or Colossians 1.16, by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, you see, is also the goal of the entirety of human history. Or Hebrews 1-2, through Jesus, God created the world. Jesus is the God who creates. It's Jesus also who has the name above every name, Philippians 2.9, the name above every name, and who is worthy of worship. Jesus has scriptural hymns written for his praise. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, Revelation 4 and 5. Even the angels worship Jesus, Hebrews 1.6. Jesus is God. Amen? He is God. God alone deserves our allegiance, and God alone deserves our exclusive worship. 
the crucified, risen, and soon returning Jesus says to his redeemed church this very morning, I am the Lord your God. I have taken on your flesh so that I might come and deliver you, not from the clutches of Pharaoh and Egypt, but from what Colossians 1 calls the domain of darkness. Jesus says to us, by my cross, I have transferred you from that domain of darkness to my kingdom. In me, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. As God, Jesus says to us, and I want you to listen carefully. This is getting personal now. He says to you, and he says to me, I will be supreme in your life. Even over relationships with family, if push comes to shove. You shall have no other gods before me. And I also insist, says Jesus, that you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 27. Just as God at Sinai demanded exclusive covenant loyalty from Israel in the first word of the ten words, so God in Jesus demands exclusive allegiance from us in the new covenant. Whatever gain we have, we count as loss for his sake. Indeed, we count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ our Lord. For His sake, we suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we might gain Christ. Friends, to keep the first word of the ten words as New Testament believers, it means we must prayerfully, honestly question ourselves every day. In what area or areas of my life might my allegiance, my affection for Jesus be threatened? Have I shifted my affection for Jesus? Just as one example. Have I shifted my allegiance for Jesus to the area of sex and sexual pleasure? Or, ask this question. Am I more loyal to my own hunger for power and possessions and money then I am loyal to the person of Jesus Christ. Or, is the area of food the thing that is threatening to captivate my affections? Or, 
Have I put pleasure and entertainment in a place that is rivaling God? Or do I seek guidance from forbidden and foolish places like astrologers and Ouija boards, fortune tellers, and palm readers and horoscopes? Or ask yourself, have I made the maintenance of my own physical health an idol that is more precious to me than the person of Jesus? Or as Daryl Johnson challenges us, just to get at this another way, to obey the first word, you shall have no other gods before me. Ask yourself, what is it that gives me a sense of security? Johnson says, you might find that your honest answer to that question will identify a God substitute. What gives me a sense of security? Is it really God himself, or is it something else? Or, he says, ask yourself, what do I fear most? The answer, again, might help you to identify a God substitute in your life. If your greatest fear, just as an example, is going bankrupt, then you might consider that money could be a God substitute in your life. Our problem, friends, as people who live after Genesis chapter 3 in a fallen world is that we have a penchant, each and every one of us, a penchant for locating and or creating false gods, idols, and aligning ourselves to those idols and swearing allegiance to those idols. As John Calvin once put it, scarcely a single person has ever been found who did not fashion for himself an idol in place of God. Surely, he said, just as water boils up from a vast, full spring, so does an immense crowd of gods flow forth from the human mind. Or as Victor Hamilton has said more recently, in the world of human fantasy, there is no end to the number of gods the human mind can generate and to which humans may become devoted. Friends, in the first word, God is declaring to us that for our own good, we must not transfer our adoration. We must not transfer our trust and our allegiance and our thanksgiving to anyone or anything else. It must center on him because he knows he is the best for us. May Father, Son, and Spirit help us and enable us, because that's the only way it's going to happen, help and enable us to keep the first word this very day and this week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, all of us can see as we go through this first word that we have broken it. And we're going to see that with all ten words, Lord. We thank you most of all that Jesus Christ has not broken any of the ten words, but that he has kept the law perfectly for us. And that as believers, it's only by his righteousness that we are acceptable 
to you. But Lord, you give us the spirit and the empowerment and the enablement to be keepers of your commands. And so I pray, Lord, as we go into battle this week, that you would come and help us and give us the power and that you would nudge us in your gentlemanly way. Nudge us, Lord, toward obedience, I pray, in the powerful and in the mighty saving name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, friends, may God lead you always in triumph in Christ. And may the delightful fragrance of his love be spread through you everywhere you go.